one of the things that we do on Christmas Eve is to just have a slight and small communion meditation, or sorry, um, uh, homily, if you will. A uh, Not that we're taking communion tonight, we'll be doing that tomorrow. But just a short reflection, and since we've already had the reading and we're not saying our creed tonight, we'll move straight into a short observation. I wanted to make a few brief comments on the lesson that we had heard tonight from Luke 1 through tw- uh, Luke 2, 1 through 20. And I want to just mention four be- very brief ideas which all really support the main idea. And my main idea tonight that I wish to impress upon you is that the Christmas story, although nice and wonderful and heartfelt and something that you may even be familiar with, cannot be understood by you without God revealing it to you personally. In saying that, I do not mean what is true for you is different from what is true for me, but as the story presents itself, as we're going to look at tonight, everything from the original Christmas is completely missed by the natural eye. Everything that would be happening at the time on the ground, so to speak, would have been completely unobservable because no one was looking in the right place. That's one of the things, that's my main idea tonight. And so despite what you may think about the Christmas accounts, even if you have heard them, even if you were paying attention tonight, it shouldn't make any sense at all. If If you really hear the Christmas story correctly, it shouldn't make any sense at all. What do I mean by that? We're so familiar with the events of the Christmas narrative that it actually becomes second nature to just believe the absolute truth of it. But I'm convinced that the way that the story is presented to, uh, to us, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I'm, I'm going to unpack that in just a minute. God is at work in the Christmas account subverting political power. He is toppling political power. In all of the scriptures, the act of taking a census is the act of political bravado and showmanship. It is the puffing up of the political leader at the time, and that puffing up is done in order to count the people to see if they are able to go to war. When we get to the time of Exodus, God commands the people to be counted for this specific reason. One of the reasons the book of Numbers is probably slightly boring to you is it has so many detailed descriptions, but it actually is quite important. God is wanting to convince his people that they are strong enough to go up in number against the armies and the peoples who are in the land. During the time of the day of Midian, that is the time of Gideon, God tells Midian to reduce his army from the 33,000 all the way down to just 300 people. We talked about that last week. During David's reign, God apparently uh, convinces David to count a census. David becomes puffed up with his own glory and power. He becomes drunk with power, if you will, and he commands the people to be counted. And as soon as he does this, he realizes his sin before God, and he pleads that God would not judge the nation for it, but rather that he himself would be able to bear the penalty. Every time that censuses are taken in the scriptures, it is always a show of military and political force. So why is this important to our story today? Because just as God moves David before, so here he moves Caesar's heart to take a census. And in doing so, causes Caesar, who thinks he's operating for his own glory and strength, to be the very agent to bring the rival king to the precisely 
correct location to fulfill his promises to David. Through this action, God fulfills his promise to David, and he does it through the sending of the Christ, the one who will ultimately topple Caesar. If you look at history just a few hundred years from this, the Roman Empire is undone through the patient and slow action of the church in her gospel witness. This single verse, the very first verse of Luke 2, which you may not have even paid much attention to, is a microcosm of the gospel all in itself. God is undoing the powers of this world, and he confounds the wisdom of this world in bringing his wisdom, that is Christ, into the world. Christmas, therefore, is the beginning of the breaking of the spell. Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. See, Caesar thinks he's acting one way, and yet he's acting a completely different way. That's my first observation for my idea that God's story of bringing his son into the world immediately from the natural eye does not make any sense. No one in Caesar's courts was concerned with anything other than getting the census counted, and yet the most important thing was slipping right underneath their, passing right underneath their noses. What matters, therefore, is not what the natural mind thinks, but what God is doing, even though man can't see it, especially because man can't see it. Likewise, consider the nature of Mary's pregnancy and Joseph's hesitation before God uh, for really a righteous reason. Mary is a betrothed virgin, and she submits to the working of the Spirit and risks the scorn of her betrothed. This is completely contrary to natural wisdom. She not only risks the scorn of her betrothed, she also risks the shunning of the community. Even to this day, as wicked as our culture is, we still have assemblage of the former understanding of propriety in marriage and in childbearing. Now, nevertheless, this isn't to say that all married or all, all children out of wedlock share some mystical affinity with Mary and the Christ, but rather it is to say that from the natural perspective, this should be a shame-filled pregnancy. And yet, because of what God is doing, because of the voice of God, the declaration of God, it is the opposite of that. Joseph, as the Gospel of Matthew tells us, even thinks about divorcing her quietly because he did not want to bring shame to her, and he also did not want to expose what is, what is obviously going on from his natural perspective again. Needless to say, Mary and Joseph did not send out birth announcements or gender discovery invitation parties. It is the complete opposite of what a pregnancy might be today. Pregnancies are things to be celebrated. Pregnancies are things to be seen as God's blessing and God's glory, and yet, this pregnancy, the pregnancy that we hear about in Luke 2, is the opposite of the natural ideal. And yet, it is the most important birth in human history. Save for that birth, all of man's history would be absurd and tragic. This birth, which had to be kept secret, is now told on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. And yet, at that time, it was something shame-filled and something not to be disclosed, something to be hidden, only for those who God reveals it to. Again, we see how God operates in revealing his son. Should Mary not have heard from Gabriel, she could neither obey God nor worship him for his faithfulness. In the prior chapter in Luke 1, she sings a psalm of praise to God because of his announcement of what was going to take place for her. 
And yet it must be seen that even in Gabriel's announcement to Mary, Mary did not come to this understanding on her own, but rather it was revealed to her from heaven. Unless the Lord appears to Joseph in the dream, he will abandon both Mary and the child without cause, because they did not commit any sin, and, they will, and he will leave them destitute like a widow and an orphan. And yet, through the breaking in of God, he comes to understand the truth. When God announces the birth of Christ, he discloses it through the angel to a group of shepherds. Now, for us who are not acquainted with farmers or people who attend livestock and so familiar with the story, we think this is just a quaint detail. But the deep irony of announcing something that is politically, religiously, and you know, philosophically important and world-changing to someone like a group of shepherds, again, to the natural mind, is folly. He discloses it through the angel to a group of shepherds, and he could have chosen religious leaders, priests, government officials, or even just common, ordinary people in the midst of cities. But rather, he chooses the most remote group of people outside of even the smaller towns hanging out with animals. Shepherds are rural by, na- by definition. They are rough around the, a- uh, the edges, so to speak. They are somewhat like sailors, if you will. They, they use speech that isn't seasoned. It's not the sort of speech you would want at a dinner table. It's the type of speech and the type of activity and behavior that's formed with you hanging out with the guys and hanging out with the difficult situations. They most likely were strangers to manners. If you've ever, if you've ever been at a dinner table, you, you have perhaps learned that you yourself at that moment had been a stranger to manners and were quickly corrected. There's a certain wildness, therefore, that acquires these shepherds. They're wild because they have to be tenacious for the defense of the flock. If you remember back in the scriptures, David slays the bear and the lion. You don't do that by being someone acquainted with poetry and tea and candles. You do that because you're formed in a context of having to defend something that's important. Rather than send the shepherds through the towns of Israel, he sends them to be witnesses, not to the people. Notice the story quite clearly. They go to find the child and disclose these things to Mary, who had already heard and already knew. That pet peeve of mine that comes up every year. Mary, did you know? Yes, read Luke 1. Mary knew quite clearly. And if the shepherds would have shown up and disclosed these things, from our perspective, it seems foolish. Why did God not send the shepherds to go awake the various towns that the Messiah had been born? Instead, he reinforces his word by sending the shepherds to go and disclose these things to Mary and Joseph and all who were with them. And it says that Mary treasured these things in her heart, but all who heard them wondered. So therefore, the condensation or the, or sorry, condescension or the humility of Christ is seen throughout the entire story. Everything that God is doing, both in the actual incarnation of the Son and also every circumstance around it, he is making it plainly clear that men cannot come to find out the truth apart from his disclosed revelation. 
The only reason you're so familiar with the story, the only reason it doesn't sound ironic is because you've heard it so many times. And yet, if you examine the text and you examine the story and hear it rightly, it makes no sense at all. He who fashioned man now takes on the form of a man in Christ. Though Christ dwelt eternally with the Father, he comes and lives as one without a true father. Notice the difference between where he had come from and where he was going to. The very word of God enters into the womb, and in order to be spoken, that is to be spoken by the Father into the world, dwells in a place where he is silent for at least nine months. This is the supreme irony and yet glory of the gospel. We are totally ignorant of everything that God does, and yet he does it for us. We are totally ignorant, and therefore, unless God opens our eyes, we will totally miss it. Some of you may have experienced this growing up, that Christmas used to be this wonderful and special time where you got gifts and there was snow and you, got to, you didn't have to go to school and things were delightful. And over the years, perhaps you've noticed, Christmas just doesn't seem as magical every single year. It's losing its glory, if you will. And I would submit to you that maybe for one of two reasons, perhaps you don't know why Christmas should be glorious in the first place. Or another reason might be, perhaps God wishes you to become well acquainted with the true reason for Christmas indeed. This Christmas is a Trinitarian action by God. It is the full expression of God's love for his people. Because of his great love, the Father sends the Son into the world to redeem his people. Christ, therefore, enters the world out of his great love for the Father and a desire for communion with his saints. And also the Spirit, because the Spirit is both the love of the Father and the love of the Son, just as he worked in Mary 2,000 years ago, he overshadows our darkened state so that the light of Christ may once again be brought into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give to us wisdom and understanding of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see the wonderful details of the story and see how you are shaming the wisdom of the world in order to bring about the wisdom of Christ. And yet, at the same time, Lord, we acknowledge and praise you that unless you open our eyes to the truth and beauty of who you are and what you came to do in redeeming your people, that we would miss it completely. Lord, we pray that you would expose our hearts to your love through the Holy Spirit, that you would work sanctification and justification in us, that we would become truly new, and that we would walk as new creations and truly and wonderfully celebrate the birth of your Son. Amen.